The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Today I'm standing in for Mary Wood. I am Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge and an addiction psychiatrist. Today we're very lucky to have an excellent and exciting guest, I think, um, Pete Early. Pete's been described as a handful of journalists in America who have the power to introduce new ideas and give them currency. Pete used to be a reporter for the Washington Post, but has since authored nine nonfiction books and three novels. In particular, we want to talk about his book, Crazy, A Father's Search Through America's Mental Health Madness. We'll hear a bit more about that book from Pete but I will say that it was one of the two finalists for the Pulitzer Prize in 2007 and has won awards for Mental Health America and the American Psychiatric Association. Besides this book, Pete has authored many other books, most recently Comrade J, The Untold Secrets of Russia's Master Spy in America After the End of the Cold War, um, which is both a New York Times and Washington Post bestseller. Hello, Pete. Hi. Thanks for having me, Dr. Green. Thanks so much. So, Pete, take us through um, a little bit about Crazy, um, why you called it that, and um, a little bit about what prompted you to write this very powerful book. Well, uh, the reason it's called Crazy is because I'm describing our mental health system, not persons with a mental health diagnosis. I knew that would be controversial, but I wanted to make people sit up and notice, and our current system is, in fact, insane. Um, I didn't know this. I'd been a journalist for more than 30 years. I thought I knew a lot about mental health. Uh, I'd covered deinstitutionalization, the closing of state hospitals. But then my son got sick, and all of a sudden, it, mental health took on a, a human face. And I struggled because the first time he got sick, um, I couldn't get him help. And then the next time he got sick, I couldn't get him help. And both of those ended up uh, with tragic uh, consequences. Um, if, I, if I may, I'll tell you about the first time. Oh, I'd love it. Yes, please do. He was a student in New York in an art school. Uh, he became psychotic. I rushed to New York to get him. And during that four-hour ride from his school to where I live in Virginia, he would laugh one minute. And then he began crying and sobbing the next. And he asked me, how would you feel, Dad, if someone you love killed himself? And I raced him to an emergency room. And I remember the nurse rolling her eyes while he talked about how he was on a special mission from God. He hadn't slept for five days. He was sure that God was telling him to do certain things. And uh, he also told the nurse that he believed all pills were poison. And we were taken to a waiting room, which is what we did for the next four hours. Finally, my son Mike said, I've had enough. I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out of here. I said, hang on, hang on. And I raced out, and I flagged down a doctor. And I'll never forget 
how he came in the room. He came in with his hands up as if he were surrendering, and he said, I'm sorry, Mr. Early, I can't help your son. And I said, you haven't even examined him. And he explained to me that it didn't matter. Virginia law was very specific. Unless a person was uh, an imminent danger to himself or someone else, he couldn't be required to undergo treatment or even be examined or uh, undergo any kind of uh, medication. And the nurse had told him that my son thought all pills were poison. So the doctor turned to me and he said, bring your son back after he tries to kill you or he tries to kill someone else. And I was flabbergasted. I took wow. my I took my son home. Can you imagine? And uh, he was sitting in front of a TV with tin foil wrapped around his head, thinking the CIA was reading his thoughts. He slipped out of my house early the next morning. He broke into a stranger's house. Um, he broke in to take a bubble bath. Luckily, no one was there. Uh, five police officers and an attack dog came. They took him out. They called me. He was at a community mental health center. I raced over. A policeman was waiting outside, and he said, Mr. Early, even though your son uh, was picked up in a house, clearly psychotic, uh, we will take him to jail unless you go in and you tell that psychiatrist that he's threatened to kill you because that's what you have to do in order to meet the immediate uh, danger criteria for an involuntary commitment. And remember, my son didn't think anything was wrong with him. And I said, well, he hasn't threatened to kill me, and the officer just shrugged. Well, I went in, and I'm not proud to tell you this, Dr. Green, because it hurt my relationship with my son, but I went in and I lied. I said he was uh, had threatened to kill me, and that was good enough to get him taken to a hospital rather than into jail. And then uh, 24 hours later, he voluntarily committed himself. Mm-hmm. Tragic. So, so the experience, already your son was um, doubtful about any interactions with the mental health world and certainly about medications and then to be palmed off as not serious or um and left in a waiting room for hours um is a further alienating alienating for him and abandoning of you um who's just looking to, for some kind of help and instead there's a surrendering and a rolling of eyes and and saying you know we can't really help you in this and we're not going to bother to apply our minds to to think how he can be helpful in this situation. Well, you know, Dr. Green, my son has had four major breakdowns, and I don't think I handled any of them well. In a subsequent one, uh, he gets forced down and shot with Haldol, mm. which he really later told me he absolutely hated. Yeah. And then, believe it or not, after I finish my book, uh, my son um, begins to go off his medication. Yeah. And, uh, you know... Um, he, this is, what, what happened was after the first time he was charged with two felonies, which really made me mad because I thought I tried to get him help. Virginia law stopped me. Now it wants to punish him uh, for a crime he committed when he wasn't thinking clearly. But anyway, we end up, he gets uh, two years of probation. He does fine. Then um, when his probation ends, he stops taking his meds. And I can see him slip. And we have a crisis mobilization team, and I called it. And I said, look, my son's slipping. He's off his meds. Can you come help? And they said, is he dangerous? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, he's not dangerous yet, but let me tell you what happened. And they said, wait a minute. You can't judge him from the past. You can't condemn him, say he's going to be dangerous. Call us if he's dangerous. 
Well, the night he became violent, the night I didn't have to lie, the night that I really needed their help, I called them and they said, well, is he dangerous or violent? And I said, he's violent. And they said, oh, we don't come if they're violent. Call the police. Oh, my goodness. So the police came and my son was shot twice with a taser. Now, the reason I'm telling you that story, Dr. Green, is this. If I couldn't get my son help after writing a book about this, spending two years studying our system with my money, my education, and my connections at the Washington Post, what chance What chance do you think someone who's in New Hampshire or Boston or wherever, who doesn't speak the language, who has no money, has no connections, has no knowledge of the system, what chance do you think they have of making it into our system and getting good care. And that's the real tragedy, I think, in America today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was also thinking your son was on two years probation. If he had done anything wrong in the meantime, he would have gone, um, he could have ended back up in jail. Absolutely. Um, and under the original charge, which would have had, and had nothing on his record about mental illness. You know, been... um, I, I ended up, I wanted to investigate this because what I discovered was what happened to my son is is just the tip of the iceberg. I discovered that there were 300,000 people with bipolar, schizophrenia, and major depression sitting in American jails and prisons. There's 500,000 on probation. 700,000 a year go through our system. So I thought, okay, I I can't do much as a father, uh, but as a journalist, I can do this. And so I decided to go in a jail that wasn't anywhere near my son's case because I, I didn't want to get him in trouble and irritate a judge, okay? Yeah. And I went into a jail, and I thought, I'll follow people through the system to see what happens to them. And what I found out is my son's been arrested. My son's been charged with a felony. My son's been tasered, and I'm lucky. I am lucky. How many people end up with their children being killed? How many of them get picked up on some ridiculous, you know, uh, charge and get put in jail and because they're psychotic get in a fight or they attack a correctional officer and they end up doing time in prison. You know, I recently spoke in Philadelphia and after I spoke, two people came up after and they were crying. They said their son had committed suicide, which this is not uncommon for people to tell me their story. They were both psychiatrists. and they said, we couldn't navigate this system. Now, I think that's pretty shocking that two psychiatrists didn't know how to save their own child. Mm-hmm. Because in those circumstances, the child got stuck between the, the law, legal system providing inadequate mental health care and waiting for a crime to be committed, and the health care system saying, unless he's um, a danger to self or other right now, um, we cannot intervene. Well, and I think it's more than that, too. I mean, these are really cruel diseases. You know this better than I do. And most of the people I met in jail had co-occurring addiction problems. A lot of them were homeless. A lot of them had co-occurring where they had addiction and mental illness. And, you know, these are these are tough illnesses. And, and part of the reason, obviously, is the most obvious is what happened to my son. You become sick and you don't even think you are. Right. And so it's very difficult to help someone who doesn't believe they're sick and, in fact, may be paranoid and think you're just trying to persecute them. Mm -hmm. And how do we judge that and balance that against protecting someone uh, from just being picked up and thrown into some kind of institution? Yeah. 
So you're talking about the lack of insight that can occur with psychotic disorders in particular, um, where people just get buffeted along by their delusions or, um, or mania into behaviors which they would not ordinarily partake in and aren't um, a testament to their personalities um, and really feel, a great, feel very compelled um, and convinced that this is the appropriate way to behave in that moment. So we'll be help projecting. Well, you'll know this better than I do, but what I read at the National Institutes of Mental Health was that 40% of persons who are psychotic do not believe there's anything wrong with them. That's a huge percentage. Huge. So how do you help someone who doesn't think he's ill? Mm-hmm. That's, right. That's right. And yet the healthcare system seems to demand that kind of, um, demand exactly that level of insight um, to be, for someone to be able to present. If someone's able to say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really thinking clearly um, and I might be deteriorating, um, then a lot of services would say, well, you're not really in need of help. You just need to um, you know, get it together in some way. Um, Pete, let's come back after a short break. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh, anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, try it. (laughs) See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. The ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend. 
who wasn't in junior high, wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit CyberTipLine.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is Mark Green standing in for Mary with Pete Early, author of Crazy, Father's Search Boom. America's mental health madness. Pete, um, I know that you spent a great deal of time in the um, jail system and have some um, probably very compelling tales to tell of just some of the predicaments that you saw that people had fallen into. Can you, you told us some startling statistics earlier about the enormous numbers of people within the criminal justice system who indeed have co-occurring disorders or major mental illnesses. Um, but tell us a little bit more about what you saw in your um, investigations. Well, I'm glad to do that. I started at the Los Angeles County Jail because it is, believe it or not, the largest public mental facility in the United States. That's a jail, not a hospital. I lasted two days before they asked me to leave because they There's were very... 3, are there 3,000 beds there? Is that right? Now, more than 3,000 of the persons in that jail have a severe mental illness. Across the United States, 16% uh, is the average population. Now, we're not talking about Hannibal Lecter serial killers. We're talking about people who have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and major depression, three definite mental illnesses that can strike anyone. Um, I tried Chicago next. They said they wouldn't let me in. New York said no. Baltimore said no. I tried Washington since I live outside the city, and they literally laughed at me. Um, I ended up getting into the Miami-Dade County Pre-Detention Center uh, because of a judge who basically told them let me in. I'll never forget, doctor, going on the ninth floor where the most psychotic patients are kept on C-Wing, which was the suicide wing, 19 cells all with glass cell fronts. Uh, the officers walked up and down the center. The cells faced the center. And I remember looking at those cells the first time and seeing angry, terrified, uh, confused men completely naked in cells that had nothing else in them. And because of a design flaw, the cells were kept cold, bone-chilling cold, but there was no uh, blankets. And uh, when you listened, you could hear the normal sounds of a jail with the doors shutting and people talking. And, but when you listened closer, you could hear the asylum sounds. I remember hearing a big thud, 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 then faster, thud, 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 then louder, thud, thud, thud. And it was one of the inmates running forward, literally smashing his forehead into the front of the plexiglass, splitting his forehead open. He screamed, I ain't crazy. And the unconcerned officer said, then quit acting like you are. And I got to know these officers, and I found out that not one of them, not one of them had had any training working with people with mental illnesses. And when I got to know them better, these officers told me that they had been assigned to work with the so-called lunatics uh, because they uh, were considered troublesome correctional officers, 
and they were assigned to that floor because their bosses wanted to get rid of them, and they gave them the worst job in the jail. Wow. As um, So these were um, selected um, officers and guards for all the wrong reasons. Absolutely. Um, particularly low in skills. And yet, were they... Um, what was their opinion of what they... It, it ran the gamut, um, and it was very interesting, Doctor, because what happened is this um, this jail had had so many lawsuits for brutality, not just on this floor but every floor, that basically the correctional people said, okay, I'm, we're tired of getting sued, so we're not going to use restraints. We're not going to use anything that uh, you know could literally uh, get us sued. And what happened then was, and I witnessed this and documented in my book, was the officers had no way to control people who were psychotic, and I'm not pushing restraints, I'm just telling you what happened in this circumstance, that they then began beating the inmates. Uh, why? Because they told me that even somebody who's psychotic will respond if you slap them around, and they recognized that people who have a diagnosis have no credibility. And so even if there were obvious physical uh, bruises, they would say, oh, they just caused them themselves. And who's going to be believed, the officer or a person with mental illness? Well, especially when there's no um, better alternative. Right. No quiet rooms, no talking. And you had the basis service. Now, there was a psychiatrist there, a wonderful guy, Joseph Portier, who had an impossible job. He told me, you know, a lot of people think if you get somebody put in jail, they'll get help. We're jail. We don't help people. It's in the hospital. I went with him on his morning rounds, and there were 92 inmates on the ninth floor. And I remember this very vividly. His rounds took us 19 and a half minutes. Now, that's an average of talking to each inmate 12.7 seconds. Wow. The other thing that was interesting was a lot of people came in uh, who knew about their medications, and they'd say, I'm on Cyprexa, I'm on Abilify. And the jail had what was called a fail-first policy. So much in mental illness has to do with money. Yeah. And the jail did not want to spend money on Cyprexa. It didn't want to spend it on Abilify. It had a contract with a specific drug company, and so everybody was put on this one medication, even if you were taking something else. And so your whole regiment of medication was thrown off. Then if you failed on that, they would consider giving you what they knew worked. But in the meantime, it wasn't uncommon for you to have a break and end up throwing urine at somebody or getting in a fight and ending up with more charges added onto your case. So it was very counterproductive. And tell me, Pete, did, um, you did say these were not Hannibal Lecter uh, right. and the criminals. So, let me, but, let me but, give you an example. But, yes. Uh, one of the persons I met was Alison Collier. She had chronic schizophrenia. She'd been homeless for more than 10 years. She lived on the streets of South Beach. Her house was a cardboard box, two-by-fours behind a cafe, a restaurant. Uh, she was walking by a bus stop one day, and her eyes locked with the eyes of an older woman who was waiting there. Yeah. And Al Fan screamed, stop stealing my thoughts, and she raced over and she shoved the older woman, not hard enough to knock her over, but she shoved her and she ran off. And well-meaning witnesses came up and said, have her arrested, get her arrested, she'll get help. Well, help's not what she got. She was arrested, she was taken to jail, she's taken before a judge. Now, Florida has a lot of elderly people because it's a good retirement area. And crimes against the elderly are automatically felonies. 
and because she had shoved two other people at bus stops, she was charged under the state's maximum three-strikes law, which meant she faced five years in prison. She goes before the judge, and the judge says, I can't try her. She's not competent, and you have to be competent. You have to understand what's going on to be put on trial. So he says, I'm She's incompetent because she's floridly psychotic. Absolutely. She has no idea what year it is. She doesn't know who he is. She just knows she's been arrested. So I'm sending you to the state hospital in Chattahoochee to be made competent, not treated, and there's a difference. Treatment means you get help. So every day at the hospital, she was taken into a room. She was shown three chairs. On one chair was written the word judge, the next one prosecutor, the third one defense attorney. And when she could tell her keepers who sat in each chair, she was deemed competent to put on trial, and she was taken back to the judge. Well, he looked down and he said, wait a minute, she's not competent. She still doesn't even know what year it is. Go back to the hospital. Dr. Green, when I found her, she had been going between the hospital and the jail 1,151 days, more than three years, and she'd never been put on trial. Now, I'm a reporter. I rushed over and showed this to the prosecutor. I said, look what I found. And they told me without any embarrassment that they knew exactly what they were doing. They were keeping her on that bus, going back and forth on purpose. And under the law, they could keep her five years before they had to either try her or turn her loose. And they were doing that because she was dangerous. Medication didn't seem to keep her come stable. And imagine this. There was no place, no place in the entire state of Florida, no long-term hospital beds, no treatment programs, for her, so they were intentionally keeping her on that bus just to keep her off the streets, and that was not atypical. That was happening all the time in Florida. It must have been an enraging year for you. It's uh, it's a travesty. You know, I wanted um, what you're describing is um, is hundreds of years old. It's the kind of treatment before compassionate treatment of people with mental illness or certainly with addictions. Um, and, you know, the terms lunatic are um, Middle Ages terms related to the, the moon and, um, the, and the, um, the kind of com- um, treatment and containment and beatings um, that you're describing are from the 19th century. And it's just not, look, I mean, people look at it and they go, oh, well, that can't, that's just the people who end up in jail. You know, there are 4,500 people in Miami who are not in jail. These are people who used to be, would have been in institutions. And we've moved them back to the community. We have them in assisted living facilities or boarding houses, which is great. We got them out of these horrific hospitals. Now we got them in our community. But let's look at those houses. There are 650 Those 4,500 people in Miami live in 650 boarding homes. Of those 650, 400 can't pass the minimum standards that Florida has to operate boarding homes. In other words, if you tried to put someone other than somebody who was psychotic uh, into that home, it wouldn't be allowed. One of my visited had a hole in the roof. Rain came through. Medications were scattered on a kitchen table. The caretaker only spoke Spanish. None of the tenants spoke Spanish. There was no therapy. There was no jobs. There was nothing but rice and beans for meals and smoking cigarettes and watching TV. And I would argue in these cases, we haven't helped these people by getting them out of these horrific institutions. We're just breaking them into smaller groups and hiding them better in our communities. Now, it's easy for me to attack the slumlords. 
But if you dig deeper, you'll find out that the average operator of a boarding home gets $29.91 for every person who he takes care of from Medicaid, from Social Security, etc. When I travel to give speeches, I board my dog at a kennel that charges me $31 a day to board my dog, feed my dog, take my dog on a walk. In other words, I pay a dollar more per day to board my dog than what we're paying people in Miami to take care of people with these horrible illnesses. Right, right. So what do you expect? Of course you're going to have a system like this. Absolutely. So, you know, you're pointing out that people, that the institutions were closed and the people were... Um, supposedly shuffled off to some kind of alternative care, but there was no alternative care. Instead, what's happened is people are either on buses between jails and um, courtrooms um, or in rooming houses waiting for the shoot drop and end up back in that kind of system because there's just no alternative seemingly available. So come back after a short break. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back. Mark Green standing in for Mary. Um, so, Pete, we're talking about the appalling situation where treatment has been eradicated um, and in its stead um, busing between courts and jails and very brief hospitalizations, um, which are really a drop in the ocean for what some, many, many people with co-occurring disorders or major mental illnesses need. Um, and this has re- resulted in a revolving door of people going between boarding houses and the street and hospital and jail, um, and recovery just seems fantastical. And yet we know that there are strongly supported evidence-based practices available. So can you say a little bit about what you know, what you found out during your investigation about this, 
dearth of adequate treatment in the face well, of Well, what I discovered, uh, Dr. Green, is, and, and since my book's been published, I've visited 45 states. I've toured 100 programs. And what I've discovered is that this is a situation that doesn't need to exist. The truth is we know how to help many, many, many people who uh, have severe mental illnesses. We just aren't doing it. We know, for instance, that Housing First, a program that takes someone, let's say, with an addiction problem and a mental illness who's homeless and says, okay, how can you focus on getting better if you're sleeping under a bridge at night and getting attacked by teenagers who think it's hilarious to attack homeless people? So let's get you off the street. Let's, let's begin there. We're going to put you in an apartment, even though you're psychotic, even though you have uh, uh, alcoholism. But we're going to get you a safe place to live. And then... Our only requirement is that you have to meet with a treatment team. You don't have to take medication if you don't want, but meet with this team. And it's an ACT team where a doctor comes to you, not you going to the doctor, and they talk to you. Why don't you like medications? Why have you tried this? And and how do you feel? And they get to know and develop a relationship. We know that if you have housing first and you have an ACT team, that it's 85% successful in helping people who are considered the hardcore persons with mental illness, the homeless on the street. We know we can help them. And if you add jobs programs, why jobs program? Because it doesn't matter if you're wiping down a table or working 40 hours a week. Uh, jobs give you a sense of fulfillment, of satisfaction, of purpose. Uh, if you add peer-to-peer or I'm what you mentioned. Uh, with peers, of mixing with people who hold their head up. Right. And, and, you know, we know that uh, these evidence-based recovery services work. And we know that medication helps 75% of persons, uh, helps reduce their symptoms, helps them stabilize. But it has to be a, an entire package. And the trick is you have to have these in your community, and then you have to have a way to get people into those programs. And, of course, involuntary commitment laws fit in that, but they should be a very small part of that. I think sometimes they're a dodge that really they're used uh, to scare people uh, just to keep, to keep people out of services. And that's very frustrating to me. And we also know that if you provide these services, you can actually save money. You look at the jail in Miami. There are 1,200 people there who have mental illnesses who cost that city $100,000 a day, and they're not getting any better. That's uh, 30, uh, what, 36 million, uh, I forget, 36 million a year, okay? For half that, 18 million, you could provide housing first and act teams and actually help them get better. And that's what's frustrating. You know, the last statistic I saw showed that for every dollar you spend on substance abuse services, there's a 4 to $7 savings realized. And you're helping people get better. And more importantly, once they get better, they can help pay taxes. So it's a win-win uh, oh, rather so than now. The, there's no, I don't know, um, the, uh, yeah, so 36 million. Can you imagine what fantastic services could be provided um, for 36 million? And the point that you're making is um, crucial. It's not that this is a one-shot deal and you treat and, that's, um, and that everything's okay, but what happens is you start treatment and people build on their own recovery. People emerge from um, homelessness and a sort of feeling of hopelessness um, and can begin to build self-esteem 
and start contributing and becoming active members of society. And um, that is that produces revenue. There have been some cost-effectiveness studies of assertive community treatment teams, and they're not cheap. Um, but dollar for dollar, they are they end up being cheaper than jail um, stays considerably, which I think is supposed to be one of the most expensive forms of um, attempts at treatment. And of course, they well, it's wrong to even call them attempts at treatment, isn't it? Well, here's the problem: is if you look at just jails. Okay, if you look at a psychiatric hospital bed, which we're having fewer and fewer of those, you know, um, HMOs in particular have been very good at closing down psychiatric beds because they're not profitable. Surgical beds are. So we have this, we're closing down state hospitals. We're closing down emergency voluntary beds. I know in New Hampshire this has been a real problem. So there is nowhere to go. Uh, And so people end up, if you look at a psychiatric bed, people go, oh, that costs $500, an average $500 a night. Jail only costs $67. But what you're not factoring in is that somebody like the guy I met in Miami, Freddie uh, Gilbert, who's a chronic schizophrenic, chronic homeless, he goes into jail every two weeks on an average, and he doesn't get any better. He goes into jail. He's picked up for vagrancy or some other crime. He's in jail for two weeks, and then he's released. He's out on the street for a week or so, and then he's back in jail. I mean, Freddie Gilbert is costing Miami uh, $65,000 a year, and he's not getting any better. Right. How, how much wiser? I mean, there's a famous New Yorker story about Million Dollar Murray, who was a man with chronic schizophrenia, who was chronically homeless, who was literally costing the city a million dollars a year just to wander the streets, uh, when, in fact, if you could get them good services and get them help, uh, they could become productive, hopefully, citizens, or if not, at least be treated more humanely than being abandoned on our streets. Yeah, so Pete, you've alluded to the hospitalization, and that is the most costly piece of um, healthcare, which hopefully only needs to be used when someone's in extreme risk. Um, but with good assertive community treatment and compassionate care for both the addictions and the major mental illness, um, you can help people move forward in their recovery so that they are more accepting of medications because they're more trusting um, of the relationship and they feel the improvements um, and can begin to accept some of the challenges that they're facing without them. Um, so you can, be, you can move people into far cheaper and uh, far more, far, and maybe even well, far cheaper forms of treatment um, than hospitalization, whereas the jails and the criminal justice system uh, never provides an opportunity to escape that kind of cycle. Absolutely, and we have a system that responds to emergencies, and that is by its nature going to be the most expensive, emergency rooms or jails, whereas if you're willing to make an investment, for instance, in housing first, uh, in the long run, it will eventually save you money, and, but instead, we like this short-term, well, well, we'll go to an emergency room. That's the worst place to go. Uh, you know, we'll lock somebody up. That's the worst thing to do. And so, you know, we've created a system that perpetuates itself. And that's where we got to break this cycle of jails or emergency rooms uh, and put in some real services that are going to help people in the long run. You know, right now the face of mental illness is this crazed gunman at Virginia Tech, my home, home state. But what we forget is Mike Wallace is the face of mental illness. Terry Bradshaw is the face of mental illness. 
you know, Patty Duke's the face of mental. Not many people want to come forward, but there are many, many successful people in our nation who have struggled with depression and bipolar disorder and even schizophrenia, which is the worst of the mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. The um, number of people who... Um, um, schizophrenia actually over the long term can have surprisingly good outcomes um, because it can be um, more of a relapsing disorder and people can have good long-term recovery. You know, I was wondering, and and I also think historically there was a lot more acceptance of um, mental illness within society and it's become a bit more carved out now um, and stigmatized and in some ways it it used to be. I'm not not sure about that because in some ways... There's more discussion about mental illness and acceptance of it in our midst, but in other ways, there would be politicians and uh, more high-profile people um, in society who, um, whose mood switches and pre-psychotic episodes were more tolerated. They were not extruded from their office um, very rapidly for deviating in any way from some fictitious, fictitious sense of normality. Well, this is something I don't understand, Dr. Green, because the National Institutes of Mental Health, if you visit their website, they will tell you that one out of five people, one out of five families is struggling with a mental illness in any given year. Now, that's 20%. That should be a tremendous um, um, political force. Yeah. It should be uh, should alarm us. I mean, twenty uh, percent. Anybody, any time a population has twenty percent of an illness, can you imagine if swine flu was twenty percent? I mean, look at the alarms it's sending now at a small percentage. Or, you know, but we because of stigma, people stay in the closet. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to acknowledge. Justifiably so. I don't want my son telling future employees he has a mental illness because of that stigma. And somehow we have to become a political force and make people sit up and take notice, especially now. Um, you know, the reason for deinstitutionalization, the reason for closing down these hospitals in the United States, everybody thinks it was compassion, concern, everybody saw the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and yeah, that played a part in it, but the real reason was money. Yeah. States were going bankrupt. They didn't want to spend the money to fix these institutions. And then the government said, federal government said, we'll do it. And then they came in, and they didn't do it. We elected Ronald Reagan, and he, in fact, came in 1980 and cut the very programs we said we were going to use. Mm-hmm. And so we've always starved this system. And, the, and what is going to happen is if we don't have good medical care in the new bills that are coming out, this is going to just keep adding up and up and up and up until it's just going to be even a more of a financial nightmare. We have to deal with this problem. Hey, is this financial nightmare obfuscated or um, made less obvious because the budget seems to be shifted to criminal justice systems? Absolutely. Help fudging the numbers? Oh, that's an excellent point. You know, it's interesting to me that the people who are calling for reform are usually sheriffs and law enforcement because they don't want people who are sick in their jails and prisons, mainly because the medication costs. These medications cost a lot of money, and they don't want to spend their budget on it. But, you know, untreated mental illness affects us in ways we just don't recognize, and politicians need to figure that out. You know, the Washington Post did an interesting thing. It looked at who was calling 911 in Washington, D.C., because we're so efficient in Washington, you know. A 911 call averages about $700 per call, okay? Now, maybe we're going to have to... Um, finish up in a second. Unfortunately, we've got an advert coming up. 
can we come back to this in a moment? Sure. Okay, great. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desk, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Oh, well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom <laughs> and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh. Shoot, get away. Play with them, dear. Hornets hate high-pitched noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see. Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow. For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi. Um, welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is with Pete Early. Um, whose book, Crazy, um, is, sounds like a fabulous um, exploration of some of the terrible issues facing people with mental illness and addiction in this country. Pete, before the break, we were just talking about some of the costs and that right. sheriffs are really calling for um, reform within the um, criminal justice system and treatment well, of mentally ill. So. so many things, money drives it. And I was talking about how there are expenses that we don't even think of as mental illness. And the Washington Post did a study. They discovered that it costs $700 every time someone calls 911. And the number one caller was a man with paranoid schizophrenia who called it more than 200 times. Uh, so it was over $140,000, I think it was. 
And oftentimes he was just calling because he wanted someone to talk to or he needed a ride somewhere. And this is an example of how untreated mental illness uh, cost a community in ways that you don't traditionally think. I mean, we were talking about the cost of jails. I think the last time I checked in Miami, they were spending uh, millions of dollars on medication uh, that f- for people who are not going to get any better because they're in a jail. Um, you know, and then you see programs like crisis intervention training, which is teaching police officers. It was interesting, I was at a conference and a police officer got up and he said, you know, we spend six hours talking about mental illness uh, when we go through our police training. Seventy percent of the calls I get have some kind of form of mental illness involved in them. Uh, And, you know, we're not adequately trained. Well, crisis intervention training helps police officers get that kind of training. It's, It's pretty startling today that a police officer is, is ten times more likely to deal with someone with a mental illness than a doctor is. Wow. That's an amazing statistic. Um, so do you think that the shifting of the um, funding, you know, how many people end up in um, with mental illness and addictions ending up within the criminal justice system, does that alter the political um, motivation to invest in mental illness or criminal justice system? Does it change? Because does that enable politicians to um, to put their emphasis away from adequate treatment, do you think, or is that? Well, I think politicians, the politicians I've talked to have said two things to me. Um, you're not going to win this on a moral ground. Uh, mental illness is not like breast cancer. Uh, it's not like schools. It's not like public roads. You don't have a lot of people behind you on this, and that's why I think Dr. Green, it's so important to remember that one out of five families have it. We should be a major concern, but people are afraid to speak out. Right. And there's the stigma. I mean, people are afraid of persons with mental illness because they're seeing people who are homeless, psychotic on the street, and that's who they tend to think of. They don't think of people like my son. They don't think of people like Mike Wallace. Uh, so we have to change that. And so until we can change that image, and there's only two ways Ways. I'm sorry, I live in Washington, D.C. I've been a reporter here a long time. There's only two things that politicians respond to, votes and money. Yeah. Uh, so we either have to get a lot of votes and get behind politicians that way or mental illness groups like National Alliance on Mental Illness, Mental Health America, somehow they're going to have to get a lot of money to give to politicians to wake them up. And I don't see that happening very much. Right. Although I, I worry that with the shuttling of people, men, people with mental illness and addictions off the streets and away from people's um, direct vision, either into the jails um, or um, into another neighborhood far away from um, mm. voters, um, the politicians can make it, can really diminish the impact. Um, that mental illness can have on voter um, preference. And it can look like we need more criminal justice money, we need more incarceration, we need more um, police force, um, rather than we need more compassionate health care. And, Doctor, you're right on target because, look, here we had Virginia Tech. We had 32 people who were killed and then the guy shot himself. So here's a state that has inadequate mental health systems. You would think after 33 dead people, we'd get good system. Instead, everybody talked about, oh, we need tighter gun control. We need to lock these people up. And that misses the entire point. You're going to have 
these incidents happen unless you begin providing good and adequate treatment and you have laws that use common sense in helping people get the treatment they need. Yeah. And that's the sad reality. Uh, locking people up, making gun controls uh, you know, tighter may appeal to the voters, but it's not going to resolve the problem of what do you do with people who are sick, who need help, and can't get it. Yeah. Hey, Pete, you know, you, in the first segment you were talking about the frustration um, of the um, commitment laws, involuntary commitment laws, and it's a real conundrum of, uh, as a clinician, what to do when someone, um, when you don't want to take away someone's liberty, um, and um, nevertheless you can see that someone really needs help. Did you come up in any of your discussions? You've given a lot of talks on this issue. Did you, do you have any ideas on um, what might be a sensible way forward for this? Well, I wish that your profession would uh, step up and speak out about this. And what I mean by that is this. If I have a heart problem, I don't go to a lawyer and ask him whether I need medical attention. If I have a mental illness, a lawyer and a judge have to decide whether I need help or not. And that's wrong. And, you know, the lowest, there's Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which I visited, has the lowest percentage of persons with mental illness in their jail and prison, 3%. How did they go from 16 to 3%? Well, they have a system where if you have two physicians, two doctors, two psychiatrists, not general practices, general practitioners, but two psychiatrists, who examine a person and say, this person needs help, then under their system, that person can be required to seek help and can be required to undergo treatment. And I think that's a much more humane, now, are they watched? Are their civil rights protected? Yes, but they have a two-doctor rule that says, no, the person doesn't have to necessarily be dangerous, that we also look at gravely disabled. We looked at a deterioration of mental health, and we have said that these people um, need the help even though they are not dangerous. It's the focus on dangerousness that causes the big problem here because in this country we don't want to affect somebody who just acts oddly, and I understand that. But if you have a long history of mental illness, if you have a long history of medication helping you, then why do we have to wait until you become dangerous when you start to slip or you go off your medication? Um, there's also the controversial AOT, assisted outpatient treatment, which is uh, actually more of a backdoor process where we say you have a history of violence, you have a history of going off your medication, therefore a judge is going to order you to stay on your medication. Uh, in New York, this was a Kindra's law, and they had a lot of controversy, a lot of opponents, but the MacArthur Foundation just did a study, independent, and it found it to be extremely beneficial in helping people who have chronic mental illnesses. Obviously, force is the last choice, but in some cases, there are people who need that extra, uh, possibly, AOT uh, assignment from a judge. I mean, we have to look at everything to try to help people. Uh, we need to look at long-term hospitalization uh, uh, differently in this sense. Getting someone to a hospital where they can get stabilized then back in the community. Nobody wants to go back to the old days. But if you don't have beds to help people, how can you get them stable in order to get them back? Uh, and those are just some of the things I think we need to look to. Yeah, Pete. 
it, you've been a fantastic guest. Can I ask you, is, is, is things turning out okay now with your son? He's been stable for 19 months, and I'm thrilled, and it's because uh, he has finally got a case manager and good care. Great. Pete, you've written an important book, and you've been a great guest. You've raised a lot of very important issues for us to think about. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Green. Bye-bye. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.